Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me as always, my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. I am so excited. I believe that this is going to be our best episode ever. And I just want to say one thing. If you're a big fan of Fleetwood Mac, you're going to love this. And if you don't like Fleetwood Mac for a number of reasons, you're going to love it as well. (laughs) Because there's so much to love and hate in this episode. But it's all so interesting. And the clips we have from Stevie Nicks and from Lindsey Buckingham in different interviews are so telling. First of all, they're great about the artists themselves. And second of all, they do speak to each other. And they speak about the problems way back in the early 80s that came home to roost just a few weeks ago. And Christopher, let's start first of all with a great story that you have about the new Fleetwood Mac. Well, this was totally unexpected. My friend Mike Myers called me and said, hey, do you want to see Neil Finn at Cafe Largo? And I went, yes, absolutely. And we were having dinner the night before, and I got there, and he said, hey, you know that gig tomorrow night we're going to? Yeah. He says, they asked me to play a song. How about if I do BBC from Austin Powers? And I said, great idea. He said, and you play guitar on it. I thought, oh, my God, it's been a lot of years since I thrashed away on an electric guitar. But, of course, I said, yes. And uh, so cut to the next night, we got to the show, uh, and uh, the backstage scene was like a commune. I mean, the Finn family writ large. There's Neil and his sons and his son's wife and little two-year-old running around. His wife plays bass on the show sometimes. Wow. They're the loveliest people, yeah. So we did the gig. We played BBC. It was really, really fun. Oh, the band were wearing togas and laurel wreaths because of a video they shot that day so it was, the whole thing was pretty wacky so christopher i just want to stop you for a second because just to remind people that neil finn is now one of the new members of fleetwood mac well we're chatting backstage before the show uh and uh neil sort of says well <clears throat> i guess you heard about my new gig and we're like yeah <laughs> and uh, i said I, I have to ask i mean were you completely surprised he said absolutely totally blown away he was doing a gig in Auckland with uh, an orchestra. He was at Soundcheck, and one of the people on the staff brings the phone over and says, "Yeah, it's Mick Fleetwood for you." <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Mick, you know, asks him, "Well, do you want to come and play with Fleetwood Mac?" It wasn't like a commitment at all. Essentially, it was an audition, I suppose, on a high level. So he and Mike Campbell and the members of Fleetwood Mac got together, and as the story goes, they jammed for a couple of days. Wow. It gelled. Boom, he's now a full-fledged member of Fleetwood Mac. Wow. Wow. And did he say much more? Did you have a chance to talk to him at all much more about the whole Fleetwood Mac thing? He said he thought, first of all, it was a really brilliant move on their part to bring in two people, Mm -hmm. Mike Campbell, Heartbreakers, guitar player, and himself, rather than trying to put the load on the shoulders of one individual to replace the essentially irreplaceable Lindsey Buckingham. Right. And he said he thought that Stevie's desire to get out and play and do the tour now and not wait, which was the critical issue, um, stemmed in part from the loss of Tom Petty and her sense that you cannot let any day go to waste. And of course, Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have really deep roots. Boy, and, and as we're mm. going to find out in a few minutes, Tom was very instrumental in helping Stevie kick off her solo career. Okay, so let's get started then with the uh, interview with Stevie Nicks from 1982. Go ahead. Well, Fleetwood Mac aren't the only band to have internal difficulties, but they may be the most public about it, Tom. And the one great thing is that the upheaval has proven to be a rich source of song material go your own way anybody or how about those lyrics from dreams players only love you when they're playing ouch Mm. but somehow they've persisted 
Now, there's a lot of fans who'll say, well, today's Fleetwood Mac isn't the same, isn't as good as it was. But, you know, what is? Nostalgia is a very forgiving thing. And some will say it hasn't been the same since Peter Green, one of the original members, left the band in 1970. And that's almost a half a century ago. So (laughs) please, folks. Yeah, for sure. Now, the hits... The hits are likely in the past, but as a touring act, they've got huge appeal. But fan loyalty is being tested big time mm-hmm. right now because, you know, the announcement being made that Buckingham was out, Neil Finn, Mike Campbell were in, not because of any romantic twists or anything behind the scenes like that, but simply because Lindsay did not want to tour and the rest of the band did. Right. This happened once before, back in the late 80s, when Billy Burnett and Rick Vito replaced Lindsay. Stevie Nicks left in 91. Christine McVie retired <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. Of course, they all came back to the Mac, didn't they? Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, you could understand Lindsay wanting to pass on the rigors of the road, given the tour will probably last a year. And if there's no new music, you could say, well, why are they doing this again? Well, Mick Fleetwood's financial troubles partially explain it. But ultimately, maybe they're just musicians albeit really well-known ones, and there's nothing like the feeling of being on stage and playing the music you've built your career on for people who love it. Absolutely. So this week, a fascinating pair of interviews from Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, uh, recorded around um, 82 and 81, respectively. Okay. Okay, before we get to that, you sent me the funniest text just a few weeks ago, and it's a, it's a piece of paper that's nailed... Oh. <laughs> To a telephone pole in your area, okay? Yeah. And it's really <laughs> colorful. It's really actually quite pretty. And it says, Stevie Nicks destroyed Fleetwood Mac. And it's a very colorful piece of paper. And it says, boycott <laughs> Fleetwood Mac. Is it I, hashtag I stand with Lindsay or yes, something like hasht- that? Hashtag yeah. I stand with Lindsay. <laughs> and it's so funny and it's so hostile, right? And boy, oh boy, I got to tell you, Stevie Nicks did not destroy Fleetwood Mac. But anyway, let's hear this interview. Go ahead. Well, one of the hallmarks of Stevie Nicks' songs is the confessional nature of them. And she talks about where the song Think About It came from. The song Think About It. It's dedicated to Christine McVie. Is it actually about Christine? Yeah. It's, um, as all my songs, a few of them are, I don't tell you what they're all written about, but uh, Christine was going through a divorce with John, and we were on the road, and this was long before any entourage existed. Mm-hmm. So there was nobody really for Christine and I except us. Yeah. And she was, you know, going through a lot of pretty bad times out there on the road in the middle of this breakup. With nobody to hang with on to. With nobody to really hang on to except me. And so I just wrote that song because she really had every reason in the world to leave. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want her to leave. Okay, here's a great story about being asked to write a song for, are you ready? Waylon Jennings and what she drew on for sources. Leather and Lace, um, which says on the album is for Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. It was. Waylon asked me to write a song called Leather and Lace, which I'd never done before. And he was going to do an album called Leather and Lace. This was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, and uh, he was going to sing it with Jesse. And so I tried to kind of get behind the psychology of what I'd already gone through with John and Christine and Lindsay and I and uh, write something that allowed Waylon or any man in the business with a wife or a girlfriend that also was right next to him doing mm-hmm. the same thing um, and let Waylon be a little weak for a minute and give Jesse a little bit of strength and turn it around just a little bit just because it's nice, you know. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in the psychology of it. And uh, when it was done, 
I guess they split up. And uh, I didn't really want one person to do it. So Whalen probably would have done it alone. Mm -hmm. But I, I couldn't really see it not being a duet. Yeah. So I asked him not to do it. And he, of course, being wonderful, didn't. And years and years later, the only people that could have done it would have been Waylon and Jesse or myself and Don, because Don and I did a demo Don of Henley. it. Yeah. yeah, Don Henley and I did a <clears throat> demo of it in 1975 that's really very good and really very much like the album. Mm. And um, so I decided to do it. <laughs> okay. Now, Stevie Nicks and Don Henley <laughs> have quite a history together. They were a couple for a while. Right. And Stevie yeah. actually got pregnant with Don Henley's child. I don't know if you know about this, but they drifted this apart. This is so lurid. I know. And Stevie terminated the pregnancy, and she never had kids. But Don Henley was not the love of her life, and neither was Lindsay Buckingham. And I'm going to tell you who it is in a few minutes, and I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat, and I think you're <laughs> honestly going to be shocked, Christopher. Well, I don't know the answer to the question, that's for sure. <laughs> Bringing in... Um, Mike Campbell to join the band, Mike mm -hmm. of, of Tom Petty's group, makes so much sense musically because he's one of those riff guys. The songs are built on the foundation of great riffs. But there were already deep connections with the Heartbreakers. Outside the Rain. It's one of my favorites. It's, a, it's, uh, it's one of the best songs on the album. That was the first song that I ever recorded with Tom Petty almost two years ago. And I'm playing piano. It was real. It was live. Mm. And... Uh, it was wonderful because it was the first time I'd really been with another band. I went back to Fleetwood Mac and said, it's like I've had an affair with another band. <laughs> oh, no. They didn't say very much about it, you know. They really, they didn't, they didn't really want to know too much about it. Um, and that was the song that I wanted on this album really badly. And for some reason, it was sort of taken off. And I said, it has to go back on. And this was like final printing artwork. <laughs> And um, I just said, it has to be on this record because it's the only link, really, between Fleetwood Mac and me. It's the, it's the dreams. It's, mm. the, it's that dun-dun-dun-dun thing that I do. Isn't that interesting? You know, at one point in that clip, she talks about how the band didn't want to know anything about her solo album. And, you know, when, when Stevie released Belladonna, the first solo album, she wrote a loving note and attached it to uh, a copy of the album and gave it to each member of the band and uh, left it for them. Lindsay refused to even look at the album, and he never read the note. There was so much hostility towards her breaking away from oh, Fleetwood Mac. Are you hashtag I stand with Stevie? Is that where you're going here, Tom? <laughs> I think I might be. <laughs> okay. What kind of a man hmm. inspires Stevie Nicks to write a song, you may wonder? The Highwayman was my parallel comparison of the Highwayman of old and the rock and roll musician of new of now. Mm -hmm. um, which are almost one and the same Which are just about time. one and the same at yeah. times. Roguish, handsome. They drop in on you. They travel the roads of the world. Cape Sometimes they're thieves. The breeze, yeah. Yes, their capes are flying. And um, there's a very romantic uh, kind of aura that surrounds them. Even for me, and I know them, and I know their secrets, and I know mm -hmm. what they do. But even for me, it's slightly, you know, awe-striking to stand back and watch them. And... Um, so I just decided to write a song about uh, the way I felt about both entities. Oh, yeah, she really likes the roguish type, <laughs> but I'm still not going to tell you who the love of her life is yet, okay? Keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she talks about her musical identity as a solo artist versus being a group member. I decided to call the album Belladonna before I wrote the song, and um, I didn't write it about a beautiful woman. I wrote it about a 
possibility of not being beautiful in any way anymore yeah. at some point. Even though I didn't look at it as any kind of a poison, I, I, for me, the whole reason that I did this album was because I really wanted to find out if I could still do something by myself without Fleetwood Mac, if I could still create alone. Yeah. And um, Belladonna was more or less an endearment that I used. You know, like if you pick up a little puppy or something, you'll say, little one or, or pretty one or baby doll or whatever you might say. Belladonna for me was that kind of an endearment. And it was talking back to myself about uh, whether or not I wanted to continue to be a crazy rock and roll star and uh, live my life until the craziness was really too much and then I just had to quit or whether I wanted to make a few decisions now and try to understand what all this last six, seven years was about. Yeah. And that's in the song. It says, uh, this is a fast lane. That's just the way that it is here. You know, that's very interesting because so many artists explain that a solo album is really important for their artistic expression and also kind of their mental health. And, you know, imagine how Stevie Nicks felt. Stevie Nicks turned out to be a terrific, like one of the great songwriters of the 1970s. But even on the album Tusk, which is a double album, I believe only four of her songs made that album. Now, imagine that. You are one of the best songwriters. You finally have confidence in your own abilities. You're an artist who wishes to express herself, and you only get four songs maybe once every two years. So you can see how someone like that wants to break out and have a solo career. Paging George Harrison. For sure. I mean, he would get one or maybe two songs on, on every Beatles album. And so how he had frustrated. quite a stockpile when it came time for that first solo record. He made, the, he made his first solo record a triple album, if you recall. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. Before joining Fleetwood Mac in a sort of prescient way, Stevie had written about what life would be like. Tom had written a song for me that was called Insider that's on the Hard Promises album. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, when I was learning it, when I learn a song, if somebody else has already sang it, I just go out and sing a harmony to it because that's the easiest, because I'm a harmony singer, really. Yeah. Uh, it's the easiest way for me to learn it. And everybody liked the the, the two-part harmony so we just didn't really want to change it and so uh, a few days later I guess Tom said uh, well I really could use a ballad and you could use a rock and roll song so why don't we switch and mm. I said fine because it's difficult for me to write a stop dragging my heart around because I don't really play terrific electric guitar yeah. and if you don't play electric guitar it's hard it's hard to write a song write for electric kind of, guitar yeah that yeah. kind of a song you know yeah. so um we just switched in contrast to working with Fleetwood Mac which would sometimes take place at a glacial pace oh. she worked relatively quickly on her first solo record I would imagine even now there are parts of the album that you would go back and do over again because most artists would do that with anything see um, I wouldn't what? see that's not that's the reason my album took two and a half months it's because we recorded Belladonna very much live with everybody in one room and all the instruments and the guitar players and the singers and uh, we didn't go back and do anything over bunches of times. Now here's a revealing look inside the recording process in which you can see the possibility for very different visions. Tell me a little bit about Paris and, and uh, how the new album is going to be for Fleetwood Mac. Well, Paris was interesting, 40 miles outside of Paris in an old chateau. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, it was really being alone. The Mac was alone outside of Paris, definitely. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, we got all the tracks recorded. Everybody's very aware that that we did our task, and now we have got to remember that there's a world that really enjoyed our music without going back and redoing it a thousand times. Yeah. And uh, it's very straightforward. It's also very much in its beginning stages. Um, I don't see why it should take very much longer, but then I'm not the one that spends the 13 months, so no. I can't speak for what they will do as a group to elongate this recording process that I dislike intensely. John and I are the ones that we don't have the time to sit around. We do, because we're told to, but, yeah. but John would rather be on his boat and I'd rather be home. I think it's... Without a doubt, it's Lindsay that is the one that really keeps us in there. Hmm. And he knows it, and we know it. It's no big secret. Uh, he knows this time that we won't sit in there for 13 months again. Yeah. John won't, neither will I. Yeah. So, And I don't think Chris will, because she wants to start doing an album of her own in January, February. So she's going to want to be done. And Chris is probably the only one that can walk in there and throw a glass on the floor and say to Mick, I'm not going to be available as of this particular time period, so if you want me on your record, you should hurry. Everybody wants to do some other things. Everybody also wants to do a real good Fleetwood Mac album. Yeah. And nobody wants to spend a year. Belladonna was so simple to do because it was so straightforward yeah. and it was so much fun and nobody ever got bored. Yeah, and they wanted more songs like Rhiannon and Dreams, or in this case, Sarah, which was written about a good friend of hers, named Sarah, of course, who had an affair behind Stevie's back with Mick Fleetwood, which greatly strained Stevie and Mick's relationship. Here's a great clip of Stevie talking about being sued over the song Sarah. Um, I felt real bad. I mean, there's no getting around it. I can't be kind about it. It, it was not very much fun. And it was especially Sarah. Um, I'd already... I gave the money to Sarah away to some people that work for us and the man that engineered it. and So the ceremony was already gone, out of my account, forever. And then to be sued for it and called a thief, basically, and get the papers in Detroit mm -hmm. um, by federal marshals, it, it was really... It was a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> and it really hurt my feelings a lot. And the thing that was most harmful about it was this, that... I talked to her in the very beginning when I first got wind of what was happening and um, I told her that I told her exactly how I'd written it and I read to her all my notes and she uh, she listened you know quietly and she told me how she had written her Sarah and I listened and I said the only thing I can say is that obviously we both got this same kind of bolt of lightning at the same time and you know I believed her she did not believe me it went on for a long time, and it cost a lot of money, of which she didn't get any money, and I didn't get any money, but I paid for everything. Yeah. And so, at the end of it, when it was finally done, because, you see, I could prove it six months before, but I just waited with that information. Mm -hmm. uh, I recorded it one night after, a, after the Cotton Bowl concert in Dallas, and uh, I had the tapes, and we just didn't tell her about that until the last minute. And so yeah. we had to go through depositions and sit around and, you know, why, you know, all my friends and uh, the people that were there. And finally, when it got to the point where we realized we were just going to have to produce the final and absolute proof that was going to make everybody look dumb, um, we did. And we won. And, and everybody except, looked dumb. And everybody yeah. looked stupid. And nobody really won because, because a lot of money was lost. And it's too bad that it couldn't have, you know, I really wanted at the very beginning when I was still a little more mellow to say, uh, let's let's just write a check and give it to a charity because you're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And 
neither am I. I can still see the fire in your eyes just oh, talking about well, it. I was furious. Wow, and you can tell that Stevie really took those accusations very personally. That's great stuff from Stevie Nicks from about 1982. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Christopher, take it away with our interview with Lindsay Buckingham. This is fascinating, when you, particularly when you put them side by side. Mm-hmm. Now, Lindsay talks about the rigors of the you know, album tour, rinse and repeat cycle, and how it affects an artist, presaging some of the conflicts that ended up finding him no longer in the band today. When the band got off the road uh, last October, October of 81, um, we had been more or less touring or making an album with short breaks in between, but nothing substantial for really uh, five, six years since we joined the band. And we sat down and decided that it was really time to take a number of months off because uh, in the process of, of recording and, and doing a year's worth of touring, you know, it, it tends to sort of suppress your individuality and suppress your own uh, sense of self-identity, whatever that may be. Um, mm-hmm. So um, in, the, in, in choosing to take maybe eight months off, uh, suddenly there was this, this time uh, that was available to pursue something like a solo album. And, you know, this is really why you see three different solo albums come out during this time period. Yeah, you know, when you have so many gifted songwriters fighting for prime real estate on every Fleetwood Mac album, you're going to get a lot of frustration, which may explain why Tusk was a double album, which in itself was not really a smart move. But it's the time factor, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. as, as you said in the Stevie segment, she likes to get in, record as much live as possible and get out, relatively speaking. I mean, especially when you compare it to the way that Lindsay works. You know, he's very experimental. He, he works with a lot of found sounds, as you call them. And, um, I mean, it leads to an interesting result, not always successful, but it rubbed against the way the other members wanted to make these records. Sure, and that's true. And one of the things that Stevie said is she wasn't about to leave the studio because she wanted to know what music was going out in her name, right? She considered Fleetwood yeah. Mac to be partly her name, and she was a, you know she was an equal partner in that band. And so she wasn't going to abandon the project just because it wasn't her song. Uh, she wanted to know what Lindsay was up to, quite frankly, and it would have been tough and it would have been painstaking and awfully boring for the other members of the band while Lindsay is noodling away in the studio. <laughs> Speaking of noodling, uh, he talks about working on his first solo album, Law & Order. I started the Law & Order album, uh, let's, I would imagine, at the end of January of 81. It was actually in a storeroom in, in Burbank, California, and uh, I had a small console and uh, a 24-track machine. That was it, really, uh, a couple of microphones. And uh, from... Uh, the end of January through the middle of April, I was in Burbank and I was getting up at 10 o'clock every day and being at the studio by 11, spending uh, about 9 or 10 hours a day uh, playing the instruments myself, engineering myself, basically working out the tunes. Um, when April came around, and that was the, the time frame that we had set for Fleetwood Mac, um, I had to put the project down, which was a little bit difficult, you know, being, I would think so. you know, sort of 60, 70% done with it, and, you know, midstream. It was a little hard to do. Uh, fly to France and cut basic tracks for Fleetwood Mac. Um, so after that period of time, I came back, and uh, during the time in France, uh, I had been conferring with Richard Dashett, uh, who was one of the Fleetwood Mac co-producers, and uh, really for the first time... Uh, uh, 
shown anyone except my girlfriend uh, any of the tracks that I'd been working on. And so he and I got our heads together and went back into the studio. And at this point in time, the second phase of the Law & Order album was done in a much more conventional setting. Now, his reflection on what really caused 16 million copies of Rumors to be sold, I find surprising. To me, the, the Rumors album... The, the phenomena of it selling 16 million albums, I think there was uh, somewhat of a, a feeling that there was a, a sense of disproportion between what it sold and, and maybe the quality of the music. And I felt that about it when it came out. I think, I, I think it's a very quality album. There's no doubt about that. But there were other things involved in the selling of the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the musical soap opera aspect, if you will. I mean, there were, there, you could definitely hear the pain on the vinyl <laughs> yes it was a very very commercial album mm-hmm. um the tusk album uh really was was not so much it was it was an artistic album it was a, a colorful album and in many ways a more interesting album to me um and uh it, it did not sell as well there were other reasons for that too the, the, the year 1977 was a boom year than the year 1980 or whatever was not uh, so there are a lot of things involved there, but but even on the Tusk album, I think having gotten some financial security mm-hmm. from the Rumors album, I I myself was choosing to approach my music in a, in a more risky way and in, in a less safe way. Things that I felt were interesting and and uh, not necessarily commercial for commercialism's sake. So really, in a sense, the uh, Law and Order album is is a, sort of a logical extension, in a way, of of some of the things that I was doing on the Tusk album. Oh, that's funny. That he doesn't think that rumors warrants the respect that it gets. He thinks that the soap opera helped sell it, and I think he's totally right. I beg to differ. I think the sales would have been there anyway, mm-hmm. and I think the um, attention on the behind the scenes drama came as a result of the high profile of being a huge selling band. Look at the string of hits that came from that record. And they'd set it up perfectly with the previous one. I think you're probably right there. And I think that one of the things about that is that people didn't really know about the heartache and all the problems within the band until after the album came out, right? They wouldn't yeah. have. They wouldn't have. And it was actually years. So maybe you're, maybe you're absolutely right. In hindsight, they said, oh, yeah, it's the soap opera that sold it. But I think at the time, people didn't know. They just heard great songs. Yeah. Well, at a certain point in this interview, Lindsay, the producer, the detail man, emerged. Oh, boy. The idea on that one track originally was to, to do... Uh, the opposite of what I was doing, which was total overdub, piece by piece, fitting it together slowly. Uh, on the song Trouble, originally we had wanted to get, uh, you know, get some interaction, some live interaction from three musicians. So we uh, we asked Mick to come down one night, and a gentleman named George Hawkins, who had uh, uh, played Play earlier, he played earlier a few years ago with uh, Kenny Loggins, and and he also played bass and sang on Mick's uh, Visitor album this year. Uh, so we got them down, and, and the three of us went out and, and played, really, for a number of hours. Uh, we left the studio. We came in the next day, and f- sometimes this happens. I mean, it's no reflection upon the musicianship, but uh, there was there was never... you know. Sometimes it just happens that there's not a drum track that sounds good to you, that mm-hmm. sounds solid all the way through. So what did you do? Well, at that point, we decided we'd just use what we could, because, you know, uh, Mick had put a lot of work into it, and there was something there to use, um, so we cut what's called a drum loop, uh, a, a tape loop, mm-hmm. which is uh, we we took four beats, just basically one, two, 
three, four, that much drums, cut the kick drum into itself so that it, you know, you could, uh, in theory, you could let the tape run into off into infinity until the tape wore out, and mm -hmm. you would you could have uh, hundreds of hours of the same thing all in, in perfect superhuman time, <laughs> right? So what yeah. you do is you you reel that off of the machine, maybe out through a mic stand or something, which can act as a uh, you know something to thread the tape around because you've got a large piece of tape that you know can't be handled on mm -hmm. the machine. Um, transfer that as it's playing to another 24 track, which is what we did. Um, about 10 minutes of it, and so basically it was ironic because we what we'd wanted to do we ended up having to do more or less the opposite, which was uh, mm -hmm. just uh, four seconds of the same drums over and over again, and I ended up like putting the fills and the the, uh, the cymbal things on later. You can tell he's thought long and hard about this. There's something that good rock drummers do, which is called a hesitation. In other words, maybe the, the bass and the pianos and whatever else is going on in the track are playing more or less in one place in the major, and, and the drums are always slightly behind the timing of all the other instruments, and that creates a tension, and, and it mm -hmm. makes it almost sound like it's going to fall apart, but it doesn't. It does. And that's, that's what creates good rock drumming. Now, the problem of achieving that in an overdub situation is, is not uh, an easy thing to do. Uh, on the Tusk album, I had done several tracks where I'd played all the instruments, and I failed at doing that, um, in a sense. So... You know, logically, how do you how do you get around that? Well, since you since you play the drums to the metronome anyway, what you what I did was I recorded the metronome on track one, then I sent that recorded metronome through a delay device of about twenty or thirty milliseconds, and re-recorded. <laughs> it sounds involved, but it mm -hmm. works. It recorded re-recorded that metronome track on track twenty-four. So now I had what represented the feel of one group of instruments on track one and what would represent the drum feel on track 24. I play uh, the drum track usually first to establish as much of a solid drum feel as you could, a as live a drum feel as you can, so that you know whatever timing uh, errors there are in all the other instruments don't, aren't, they don't lock you into having to play around mm -hmm. that once you've got other instruments there. Did Lindsey Buckingham really cover Frank Sinatra? I'm interested in, in with September song, the old skip and flip tune, mm -hmm. which is great, mm -hmm. uh, and satisfied mine. Why those three when you had a wealth of songs to choose to mix with your own? Well, those were uh, three. Uh, let me start with the September song, actually. September song great old standard. is a, a standard from the 40s. It's been done by a couple of other people. Um, the version that I got the words from uh, and, the, and some of the chords that I wasn't quite sure of was from an old Tommy Dorsey uh, arrangement with mm -hmm. Frank Sinatra singing. Um, I think the, the concept behind that song musically, now there there are lyrical things that run through all of those songs that, that I can tell you about later, but from a, a strict musical standpoint, I think that I wanted to do a song that did sound like a 40s standard and do a very sort of rocky version, rock it up a bit, uh, like it had never been done, in the sense that Elvis might have done I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, which was sounded to me very much like a 40s tune, a Tin Pan Alley song, and, and he just, you know, really got raucous with it. And, mm -hmm. and that, that was the thinking behind that musically. Now, following up rumors was always going to be a massive challenge for Fleetwood Mac, and Tusk certainly met with, let's say, widely divergent responses. <laughs> Looking back on Tusk, it's been reconsidered in a more positive light. But 
I mean, I've listened to it. It still sounds like an outlier in their catalog. Mm -hmm. Buckingham took the majority of the heat for not making rumors, too. On the Tusk album, uh, many people have spoken about it, and it's, and it's all history now, that you did probably one of one of your biggest contributions of all the, the Mac albums to that time. And I'm wondering, now that the solo album with Law & Order is out, when the new <clears throat> Mac album comes out, are you going to come to the forefront again with a lot of your own compositions? Well, I think one of the reasons that people became more aware of what I was doing on the Tusk album because, was because the contrast not only... Yeah, that's uh, enough for me. Yeah. That's well, the, that's, yeah <laughs> that was yeah. great. Uh, the mm -hmm. contrast not only to Rumors as a whole album, but also the contrast of my songs to everyone else's songs on the album. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you pulled those songs, the, there's eight songs of mine on the Tusk album, if you pulled those off, they would become a little more coherent within themselves, almost as a solo album. You could almost make that a solo album, and, mm -hmm. and it would make more sense than it, than it did necessarily in the context of the Mac. But, um, and as I said before, this solo album is a sort of a logical extension of that. And speaking of the making of rumors, I have one more salacious fact. Actually, it's one more, probably another dozen that I have. But they did so much cocaine during the making of Rumors that they were going to give their dealer a credit on the album jacket, but he didn't oh live God. long enough for them to do that. Someone <laughs> got to him. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. I, by the way, um, when, when I was chatting with Neil Finn backstage, I said, I'll resist the temptation to call out, um, go your own way. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed. He said, someone beat you to it the other night. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, wow, for sure. And by the way, on the first of those Steel Finn uh, shows, Stevie was there. And, um, and Mike Campbell got up and, and jammed. And they, they played an old Bowie tune called Moon Age Daydream. Oh, wow. So Stevie, Mike Campbell, and Neil Finn, three-fifths or three-sixths of uh, Fleetwood Mac, half of Fleetwood Mac are up there playing and jamming. That's fantastic. She didn't sing, but she was there. That's great. Tom, you recently dug into the Stevie Nicks biography. How was it? Well, it's fantastic, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through, and I've, I've already got three pages of notes just to share with you. The book is called Gold Dust Woman, and it's by Stephen Davis, and he's the guy who wrote Hammer of the Gods, that very, very right. famous Led Zeppelin book. He also wrote one of my favorite books about the Rolling Stones called Old Gods Almost Dead, and that is a phenomenal book, and that also has a lot of great detail in it. So let me share some of my favorite moments from Goldust Woman, the book by Stephen Davis, okay? First of all, when Stevie was a little kid, she couldn't pronounce her own name. She said T.D., so for her young days to her teenage days, she was always known as T.D., so T.D. Nicks would have been uh, her name on all those solo records. Um, and when she first started to get into music, she had to shush her parents when a good song came on the radio. She'd say, stop, I'm concentrating on this. And what she meant is that she was listening to the very structure of the song and kind of teaching herself how to write a song. She first met Lindsey wow. Buckingham when she was 17 and he was 16. Lindsey was playing California Dreaming by the Mamas and Papas, and she instantly sung harmony. They locked eyes, and the rest is history. And some of that history, of course, is great, <laughs> and some of it is not. Very what? cool. Very obscure, but very cool. What else can I tell you? Okay, this is actual Fleetwood Mac history here. Fleetwood Mac was a soap opera even before Stevie and Lindsey joined. At one point, Mick's wife... Jenny had an affair with guitarist Bob Weston, who was a friend of Mick's. There was such a huge blowout that everyone went back to England and stopped touring. However, they still had a tour to finish, 
and the management sent out a substitute Fleetwood Mac to fill in the remaining dates. And it caused such a huge scandal that it almost ruined the Fleetwood Mac name forever. Wow. It's not Bob Welch. No, this is Bob Weston. Okay. The very first billboard ad announcing the new lineup for Fleetwood Mac identified Stevie as Lindsay and Lindsay as Stevie, and they were really ticked off about that. Well, yes. In 19- I don't want, you know, you don't want to be Christopher Ward and I'm Tom Jokey, right? I mean, <laughs> you know what? I think I would. Stevie and Lindsay had a huge blowout when she heard the lyrics of the song Go Your Own Way because that packing up, shacking up is all you want to do because she thought that he was accusing her of secretly being unfaithful to him and she says that's absolutely not true. And at one point during all of this drama, the members of Fleetwood Mac were posing on a mattress for a photo shoot for Rolling Stone magazine. And you can see that cover of Rolling Stone if you Google it. And after the photo shoot was over, Lindsay and Stevie, who had not been seeing each other for a long time at that point, started making out and everybody got uncomfortable and left the room until the production people came in and said, uh, we, need, we need our mattress back and we need our room back. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> When Steve- uh, I'm feeling wrung out just listening to this stuff. <laughs> okay, so one of her first hits was the song Edge of 17. Here's how the title came along. So she becomes good friends with Tom Petty's wife, Jane. Jane's got a southern accent. And so Stevie asks Jane when her and Tom met, and she replied in a southern accent, well, we met at the edge of 17, so at the age of 17, Stevie thought that she said Edge of 17 and thought that would be an excellent song title. There you go. That's how it's done, folks. All by accident. Okay, this is the strangest story of the book, and this is also really sad. So she's got her best friend's name is Robin, and Robin gets very, very sick with leukemia. But she also defied the odds by getting pregnant, which is something apparently that does not happen once you're that sick. And when she passed away, Stevie promised to look after the baby and her ex-husband. So Stevie actually ended up getting married to the ex-husband, which was shocking to everyone involved. And it only lasted three months and the marriage was annulled. She didn't see the baby after that at all. But years later, he did contact Stevie and she later helped put him through college. Oh my goodness, this is epic. I know, it really is an epic story. I'm telling you, I'm only two-thirds of the way through the book, and I'm telling you the best parts, but it is worth reading. It's called Gold Dust Woman. Uh, It's about Stevie Nicks. Okay, here's another fact. One day, 1982, Stevie is listening to the radio. The Prince song Little Red Corvette comes on, and she starts humming her new song, which she's written, called Stand Back. She starts humming it along with the Prince song. She contacts Prince and invites him into the studio, and he played that incredible synthesizer part on Stand Back, and he never wanted credit for it. But that's him doing that just fascinating, that really hooky uh, keyboard part on Stand Back. Wow. I did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Christopher, here it is. I'm going to give you a couple of guesses. Can you guess the love of Stevie Nicks' life? It's another musician. It's a musician that's connected with one of the bands that she is kind of connected to. Okay? And it's not Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But this person was the love of her life. Any thoughts? Mm, Frank Sinatra? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for coming out. You've meant a lot to the team, Christopher. (laughs) Okay, Okay, the answer is... I have no idea. I don't know these things. You know more of this stuff than I do. The love of her life, and I heard this. I actually heard this from her when we did an interview with her in about about the year 2000. And she 
talk to us about it, but she wouldn't say it on the air, but it did come out a few years later, and she's even uh, acknowledged this. The love of her life is Joe Walsh. Oh, my gosh. I know. And she had a three-year, I believe it's a three-year relationship with him, and she said he is the one person in her life that connected with her in the way that she'd never been connected with. Their love for each other was real. The problem was the drugs that they took it was such a colossal part of their lives and about their life together that it ruined them. As it will. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there you go. The love of her life, Joe Walsh from the Eagles. Wow, love in the fast lane, huh? <laughs> okay, time now for the wisdom of Dave. Here's David Lee Roth. And in true Van Halen fashion, the real Van Halen tradition, you know, we stay in touch with what's happening around the world. We read, we watch the TV, or, you know, stay on top of what's currently happening. And, um, you know, nowadays it's the time of the big budget production for the, for the pop videos. You know, $150,000 for Michael Jackson, $120,000 for Pat Benatar. You know, and you've got these superstar names like Bob Giraldi producing and Mulcahy producing for Duran Duran, you know, and this sort of thing. So in true Van Halen tradition, we decided to make our video completely by ourselves and hand shoot it on Super 8 cameras. So far, it's cost us about 320 bucks and change. And we'll probably be up to a little less than $400 by the time we're through with (laughs) editing. And 30 million people are going to see this. And I suspect we'll change the face of rock video, just like we changed the face of rock music. And I'll explain that. Van Halen has effectively changed the face of rock music for two reasons. One, because one half of the people try and copy the band. They want to grow their hair like this. They want to play guitar lickety-split like Edward. They want to sound like Alex's drum sound. And the other half of the people are so revolted by our music and our pose and the way I do my interviews, they were forced to come up with substantial alternatives. Okay, there you go. There's Dave. Dude! I love those segments. It's a a bit of a guilty pleasure, you know. Thanks very much for joining us on this episode of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. We'll see you next time.